Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown. Before we get to the interview with Steve Kerr, I wanted to point out that I have had him on the show a couple times before and they're really awesome interviews because I get to ask him questions that nobody ever asks him. We get into discussions about X's and O's and strategy and communication and shooting, all great stuff that you rarely see other media members ask. So you definitely want to check those out, link in the description below. And on this one, we start out talking about Steph Curry's new documentary and him being underrated, but what it really turns into is a discussion about how Steve Kerr was underrated as a player. And you'll hear some really great insights into shooting, as well as uh, the way they built their offense around Steph to unlock him into one of the greatest players we've ever seen play the game. So, without much further ado, here is the interview I did with Steve Kerr. Well, Coach, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show and, uh, and breaking some stuff down with us uh, about Steph Curry and this documentary. And uh, I thought we could kind of just jump right into it with, here's my question. Uh, the underrated notion of this was that Curry's scouting report was way off, you know, but coming out of college into the NBA. It just so happens that at that time, you were probably busy reading a lot of scouting reports. Do you remember what that was like uh, in your role as GM with the Suns? Oh, yeah. We, we watched him uh carefully i remember seeing him for the first time at ucla um davidson played against ucla actually in anaheim at the john wooden classic and um, he reminded us a lot of steve nash and so we weren't as concerned about his size uh as a lot of the scouts were uh i don't think anybody could have predicted you know what he eventually became but uh and we thought he had a chance to be really good and much like Nash, a guy who fit the modern game in terms of, you know, the, the, the skill set being, being able to, you know, check every box. Well, that, that's fascinating because the modern game in theory didn't quite take hold until, you know, 2010, 2010, 2011. This was now 2007, 2008. Um, but that said, I suppose we did have a model with Steve Nash, which you, which you were busy watching uh, up close and personal. So, so none of those things about being like too slow, uh, being too small, getting pushed around, that didn't have, that didn't resonate with you guys as you were evaluating. Well, I mean, it was, um, it was a, a concern, but, um, you know, not a big enough concern to, uh, to not draft him. We tried to trade up, um, to draft him and, uh, we weren't able to, but, um, yeah, I mean, he was, uh, so much like Nash and, and I think, um, because we had watched, you know, really Mike D'Antoni uh, come in and, and change the, the way the NBA was played. Um, that, the Suns were kind of at the forefront of that. So it was maybe a little easier to see uh, Steph stepping into a role where he could be a, you know, shot creator, shot maker uh, like Nash, because, you know, neither, neither guy, blew you away with with the speed and bounce but it was the balance and the coordination uh, that was just uh, you know so breathtaking you know i'm kind of curious i'm checking how old steve nash was uh during rookie uh during steph's rookie year so Rick, Rick, he came in at 2009-10 nash was uh 35 so imagine that right so imagine you bringing curry into that being mentored for a couple of years and then going right into that. I suppose that was what you're thinking was right to sort of smoothly transition into the future. Yeah. Yeah. That was the idea. You know, we, we, uh, we get a great mentoring uh, situation with Nash. And uh, I remember Steve told me, um, he said, yeah, Curry's my favorite player in the draft. We, we I'd love to love to play with him. Uh, but it wasn't meant to be. And, and um, 
it's something I think about pretty often because uh, I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't meant to be because I never would have coached him here in Golden State. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second because the, the notion of underrated and Steph Curry uh, at this point doesn't really work because obviously he's rated where he should be, I'd imagine, as one of the greats. Um, but I did strike me when I was kind of preparing this and knowing I was going to talk to you that uh, the, the real underrated with all caps would probably be the Steve Kerr story. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that would that would work in my my story too. That title would work for sure. So I just want to explore that because I've always been fascinated by players that came out of your era, really good. You know, and by the way, one of the reasons is that we, we now know how to teach like shooting, for instance, a lot better than we did when you were growing up, when I was growing up. So I'm always amazed at the guys that actually did overcome what I would perceive as suboptimal teaching of shooting so i was kind of curious do you have any in, insight into you know 13 year old seeker 14 year old seeker as you got to develop that skill uh what clicked so much better than most other people you were playing with well i had great coaching you know i used to go to john wooden basketball camp when i was a kid and then um, as i got older um, I was lucky to, to work with Chip England, um, who went to my high school. He was four years ahead of me and uh, now considered one of the great shooting coaches of all time. Uh, he actually coached me when I was 14, 15 years old. And uh, so I had really good coaching. Um, my high school coach, Jerry Marvin at Palisades High, was a you know, legendary coach in the L.A. area. So I was really lucky um, to, to have great coaching and, and to learn, you know, some pretty basic mechanics as a, as a young kid. And then then work on them from there. So, so you feel like the, the basic mechanics that we all learned at some point, uh, somehow you solve that better than most. I, I always feel like someone would have said, I realized that when I finally started lifting my you know arms up before I started straightening my legs, something like that. But it, it seems to me that especially the good shooters don't maybe don't always have that that detail. It just sort of happens over hard work. Do, do you have any insight into that? Was there any little thing there that you you noticed? That you were doing other people weren't uh no i i think it was um you know i i learned to shoot over a long period of time i i had really good hand-eye coordination as a kid so you know as soon as i could pick up a ball i could make the ball go through the hoop um, but as i got older like all kids you know i had to get the left hand off of the ball as much as i could and you know when i finally got strong enough to to, to shoot one-handed um you know, I, I had to work at that, but um, I was still learning about the shot even late in my NBA career and, and you know, learning little tweaks, little little thoughts and, and ideas that um, that may have, um, you know, just helped me during a season, maybe helped me get, get out of a slump. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just think it's, it's, you know, like anything, it's a constant, constant work in progress and you're 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 always learning. You're always getting better. You know, it's funny. I use I reference you and like Danny Ainge and a couple of guys from that era uh, who come off a lot of pin downs. And um, a lot of times, you know, how do you know that you're open coming around that pin down? I, I think I might have figured it out going frame by frame now that we have, you know, YouTube and we can go look at these games again. But did you have a little secret to that? Because obviously the guy's trailing, for instance, and you have to know if you're open. Did you remember like how that worked for you, how you knew you could get up and just catch and shoot versus maybe having to continue to curl and, and dribble? No, it was a it was a really tough thing to do because the athletes in the NBA are just so good. Um, it's one of the reasons why I was much better going to my right uh, shooting than going to my left, unlike a lot of 
right-handed shooters um, because going to my right allowed me to just get a half step further away from the defender. Um, so one dribble right, you know, I could create a tiny bit of separation. Now the shot blocker has to reach all the way across my body. Whereas if I'm going left, you know, the shot blocker is right there on the ball. So I grew much more comfortable going to my right or even, you know, curling um, off of a pin down, you know, to, as I came to the pass, you know, into my in, shooting, you know, with the ball in that right side pocket. Because, you know, I, I can almost picture it. I can see Ainge doing it. I think I can see you doing it in my brain. Uh, if you're coming, going to your left. And by the way, to me, because you're going to your left, you're already more aligned to the basket with your right arm and right wrist. So it's almost right. like that's more natural. But my memory that I see coming off of a hop, which is another big one we can maybe discuss for a second. Uh, as you're in the air and the ball's in coming in your hands, I feel like I would. there's a glance down slightly where then out of the peripheral vision, you can then see where the guy is mm. before you land into the shot or not. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, I probably figured that out um, instinctively. I, I never really, you know, th thought of it in those terms. But I think uh, for me, like most players, it was a matter of learning the speed of the game and figuring out what I could and couldn't do. And and uh, that's the experience that, you know, the, the value of experience as you go and you get better. You just figure out where your shots are going to come from and and how to get those shots off. Well, okay, let's talk about getting shots off because, um, you know, there's a different era between uh, in Steph's career between when coaches switched and you took over. So, uh, and you've talked about this before, but I thought we could get into a little bit of discussion about the the unlocking of Steph Curry. Although, ironically, I believe the first year you coached him, he averaged less per game slightly than the year before and then exploded the next year after that, which is probably part of the process of what you were doing building your offense. So, can you give us a little more insight into that and how you sort of built that uh, and put it together um, from this, from scratch? Well, first of all, Steph was an all-star before I got here. So, uh, you know, I was, he was one of the main reasons I wanted this job. He was such a brilliant player that I, uh, and a brilliant human being that I knew if I could connect with him, I'd have a much greater chance for success. Um, but um all we tried to do, you know, when I got here my first year, our staff just wanted to get a little more movement. Steph was so good um, off the ball in college, and uh, and then he was getting really good on the ball his first few years in the NBA. And so that combination is so rare. Um, very few players, if, if any, uh, have had that combination of, of being lethal both on and off the dribble. Mark Price comes to mind. Uh, maybe Ray Allen a little bit, um, not to the extent that Steph is, but um, usually guys are either good off the dribble or off the catch, but not both. So we also had a lot of great passers on our team, um, especially our big guys. So we just felt like uh, moving Steph off the ball uh, would open up the game with some of our some of our, of our of our passing with guys like Bogut, David Lee, Draymond, and uh, so it was really a fun fun way to play. Okay. And so, uh, and, and you sat down, I mean, you know, you had been a GM, you had played for Pop, you played for Phil Jackson um, on the triangle and, and, and other various offenses. So, um, you know, specifically some of the routes, some of the ways you decided to put it together, like how, how did that, you know, is there a way to encapsulate that process uh, and, and explain that and how it all came together so quickly? Yeah. I mean, I think the offense really was a, uh, <clears throat> a hybrid of the triangle uh, from Phil Jackson and Tex Winter. 
and the uh, the San Antonio uh, weak and strong motion stuff. And um, so we had, um, you know, some of our sets were straight out of the, the San Antonio system. You know, our weak roll where Steph hits, hits ahead, cuts through, and it's swing, swing, and we, we pin down onto the, the screener down on the block. Uh, that, that was Tony Parker for years in San Antonio, and it just seemed like an obvious set. Um, the biggest thing from the triangle were the, the split, the, the low post splits. Um, you know, we, we ran that in Chicago and it was, I always thought it was so hard to guard and it was a great way to get um, open shots for shooters catching the ball at an angle where they can already see the hoop. So it, they don't have to get these pin downs where they're running away from the hoop. You know, if you throw the ball to the low post and you get a split, if, if the defense makes a mistake, it's, not only an open shot, but you're staring right at the rim, which I think makes it a much easier shot. I, I think the statistics will also bear that out when the passes come from the basket area out. It's a higher percentage than than other ones. And I, and I always had a problem with floppy sets, which we don't see a lot of anymore because you're having to go so fast away from the basket and then somehow catch, get yourself aligned, get that shot right. off the momentum. Uh, now, you did probably more floppies than anybody in that era um, in a way that that had to be a thing that you needed to master, right? Coming off of the going at a 45 degree away from the basket and then somehow turn and shoot it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we, we ran uh, some floppy in the, in the triangle. Um, that was one of our sets that, that uh, Phil would actually run for, <clears throat> for those of us who were shooters on the team, you know, just, uh, just a pin down. And if it's not there, you, you flow right back into the triangle, hit the post, set the split cut, you know, make the third cutter uh, screen. I mean, all, all those things were so instinctive in that offense, um, which was one of the reasons it was such a, a fun offense to play in. Um, but a lot of teams were running uh, floppy back then. Uh, Pat Riley's teams all ran it. I think of John Starks flying off screens. Reggie Miller was the best of the whole era, flying off those multiple screens and being able to shoot um, – you know, when, when, when his momentum was carrying him away from the hoop, those are difficult shots, but um, yeah, Steph makes those with ease. JJ Redick, uh, Clay Thompson. Those are the guys I think of. Mm -hmm. um, and so interestingly enough about the low post splits that you're talking about is when you watch the, the bulls do it, when you were there, they didn't, you guys didn't often run that you would have the corner and the wing cut through at the mm -hmm. same time and then do your, you know, set a screen on the weak side uh, forward and come across. So sometimes you would. I think I've even been able to find a couple times when I would go through the old footage of that split cut that you guys run now. So I'm kind of curious, so how did you – because if you watch Texas teams from, the, from Kansas State in the 60s, that was the base way they did it, the way you do it now. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious, how did you – I mean, that seemed to be a little bit of a departure from what the normal triangle was uh, when you started running it. How did that come about? Well, really, we just wanted to run it um, organically so that um, when the ball went into the post from the wing, it was just an automatic um, split between the guy on the wing and the guy at the top of the key. Um, usually, we did, did not have the corner, the strong side corner filled. It was usually oh. more of a five out or a four out setting with one guy posted and you run right into the splits. Um so it, it just sort of happened organically, um, but we, we, you know, as our guys got more and more comfortable with it, then we started calling sets out of it. And, and actually, you know, we, we, we eventually gave it a name and started running different things out of it. But the whole idea at first was 
any of our big guys, you know, run down to the block, get the ball, and we're going to get Steph Curry and Clay Thompson in a split, and that's going to put a lot of stress on the defense. Absolutely. And then what I like about it now is that I, I have to imagine out of necessity, you've developed some really clever ways of disguising this until all of a sudden there's a split. It has to be because the defense has just simply got better at guarding the initial split and that basic action, right? Yeah. And so many teams um, started switching that, um, you know, w- w- I think the, the whole league started to run um, gaggles where you get three guys in a, in a, in a row without the ball and, you know, switching when there's three people involved off the ball is much more difficult than with two. And um, so I think Brad Stevens um, started running kind of weak side gaggles. Um, Eric Spolstra runs them beautifully in Miami. Um, So we started adding that where, you know, now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're splitting, but you're also, you're getting a third guy curling uh, out of those splits and the ball sometimes will be up at the top of the key or, or at the wing. So you're doing it at different angles. And I think that's one way the, the NBA has really evolved over the last uh, five, six years, instead of, you know, all high pick and rolls um, with the floor space, you're getting more and more teams kind of adding this kind of movement um, splits and gaggles, trying to t- trying to confuse the switching defenses because they're tough to attack one-on-one. You know, what, what I noticed having studied so much footage and, you know, since, you know, 2010 when I started this whole thing uh, was that, you know, you hold the fist up, you call it, you know, pick and roll right at the beginning. And the defense, that's how they're used to practicing that. They are in the best position they can possibly be in if you do it from the start. What I feel like the, the Spurs sort of did in, influence us in the 20 in, in their, uh, their, their run was that they needed some side to side movement before the pick and roll. And I'm wondering if that is something that, I mean, you you are close with Pop and this is what you're developing as well. It seems to me that this would be something you would probably tell every coach in their, if they're designing their offense to get some sort of movement before you didn't set the, the, the ball screen. Is that fair yeah, enough to say? For sure, for sure. And, and that's what some of the weak and strong actions in San Antonio allowed uh, Pop to do. And and um, so we've, we've copied some of that stuff. Um, I think um, the challenge now, you, you've got so many teams who are playing four guys who are six, seven and can switch everything. Um, you really can't just do stuff from a stagnant basis and, and run a pick and roll and expect to gain much of an advantage unless your guy has otherworldly other talent and can just blow by everyone. Um, so I, I think that's where the creativity comes into play. And that's where, you know, as I said, I think there's a lot of coaches who are who are really clever with that. Rick Carlisle uh, comes to mind. Um, you know, he, he runs a lot of good stuff where there's some deception and movement. You're just trying to get the defense to react one way and just get them a half step behind um, when, the, when the pick and roll is actually established. I'm kind of curious. You know, most NBA players are so skilled, they can go either direction. But do you ever find yourself sort of designing sets knowing you want to get this player going to his strong side, for instance, uh, versus the other way. Does that ever, does that ever come up? Yeah. And, and a lot of times I'll, I'll call a play in the huddle and I'll just, you know, maybe Jordan Poole last year, uh, Steph occasionally they'll just say, Hey, let's run it on the other side so I can go that way. And I'll say, okay, well, we'll just flip it. And then uh, I learn, you know, next time I call that play, I remember to run it on that, that side of the floor. But I would say most players have a, 
a tendency and a preference, you know, going one way or the other. And you definitely try to design stuff to, uh, to, to players preferred sides. Well, you know, well, watching this depth documentary, what I'm doing going frame by frame, I can kind of look at it on my computer screen and I'm always examining the, the mechanics and, and all the things that Steph is doing. Um, the one thing that, you know, I, I make a big deal about is how the eyes follow the ball after the release. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before. We have freeze frames with you doing this um, before the ball's out of your hand even. And I know you've mentioned this before where I believe you even had, you had coaches in your past who tried to stop you from doing that. Is that, is that right? Yeah. In fact, Chip England uh, tried to get me to, to, to switch. And as I said, he's, you know, he's one of the great uh, teachers of all time to me. I think it's, you don't really teach it. I think a player when he starts shooting naturally does one or the other based on what his brain is telling him to do. And uh, I, I would feel strange telling someone to, you know, to shift uh, because it was so awkward for me when I tried to do it. But, you know, having studied um, players, you know, once I learned that, Oh wait, some people watch the ball. Some people look at the rim. I started paying closer attention and there's there's guys who do both, you know, like they, like some of the great shooters of all time were ball watchers, you know, Reggie Miller, Larry Bird, Steph, Clay. Uh, but there's also been phenomenal shooters, Eddie Johnson, who just stared at the rim the entire time. Um, there's great shooters on both sides. It's just I think it's however your brain operates. You just let that let the person, you know, let that let that go. I mean, I, I will say the list of the great shooters that do follow the ball is much longer than the don't. So, you know, Reddick and KD are the two guys right now I can think of who could really are laser focused on the rim the whole way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think it's interesting is that, and you, I think you can back me up on this, it's a different shot when you do one or the other and you try doing the other way, right? Is, is that the other way to you? It, when I tried to, sh- to just look at the rim and I shot the ball, I felt like I had no idea where the ball was going. I felt naked. It was it was a bizarre feeling, and so I it I didn't experiment with that for more than about five minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, and by the way, the argument is, what does it matter? It's out of your hand for the right. most part. So how? But I think that must be the testament to how much the psychological aspect of shooting influences the ball, right? I mean that that sort of tells you right there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you know, it's. Um, it's in every player's mind, you know, how he sees the the ball, how he sees the hoop, um, how he's comfortable. So uh, I think um, I would never change anybody from one direction to the other. You know, um, like you said, Kevin Durant is a rim watcher. JJ Redick, these guys are you know two of the greatest shooters of all time. So um, I think Mark Price, if I remember correctly, was also a rim watcher i'd have to i'd have to to uh, to check that but um it's there's definitely a psychological component to shooting and you just want the player to have as much confidence as possible uh yes that's a really good point and the confidence thing I, I tend to kind of get a little bit um uh what's the word uneasy because i don't know what that means per se to me what confidence means is rhythm and when I and what rhythm to me is very because I, I like the concrete, very specific stuff. So to me, rhythm is when are you lifting your arms in conjunction with when are your knees yes. straightening, mm-hmm. which is a concept that I don't think you probably never when you were growing up and even in the high school, never no one had ever discussed that concept with you while you're shooting. Right. Yeah, I, I remember my high school coach brought it up to me. That was the sure. first time anybody ever said anything to me. Uh, but uh, now um, I've. I've really 
grown to, 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 to look at that closely when I see a shooter. Uh, I've even asked you a couple of times, hey, can you evaluate uh, one of our guys and tell me what you see? And you've pointed out, you know, maybe the, the ball going up and the body going down. You know, as a player rises up here, his knees are going down to bend. Two, two things going in opposite direction. It's almost impossible to tie that back together. And so I know you're a big proponent of rhythm. I, I think it's a huge part of being a great shooter. And it's one of the reasons Steph Curry is the greatest of all time, because he is constantly in rhythm. Well, let's talk about really quickly uh, about the hop, because you yeah. were a hop shooter. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, Craig Hodges has a great story. You guys didn't line up at the, for the Bulls together, but um, you, you might have even come across his path. And he talked about a great story of him doing the drills, I think, for the Bulls and killing everybody, getting more shots off and work quicker than anybody else. And the coaches are looking at him like they don't know what, why. <laughs> like I'm hopping and these guys are trying to one to it and they can't get it off in time. Um, I, I don't remember. I actually, when I was growing up, we, I had a hop coming off the baseline, you know, like almost like a floppy kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, and never shot it anywhere else. And even though I mm -hmm. loved it, it was really good for me. And I think part of the reason why is because no one ever taught it or even talked about it. So how did you develop that? Was that high school? Was that college? Was that later? That was college. Yeah. Um, I had a, an assistant coach at Arizona named Scott Thompson who taught me the hop and, and I just started, uh, really shooting, you know, hundreds of shots a day and I'd shoot 10 at a spot and, uh, you know, and coach Thompson would rebound for me. He'd throw it right back. And I would, it just was so natural to, to hop into a shot 10 times in a row as you're getting the, the rhythm of the rebound back and forth. And I think I just shot so many shots practicing that way that the hop just became really natural for me. And, and, um, and that's why, you know, I was I was much more of a spot up shooter than than anything is that, um, you know, that hop if, as that pass is coming. If you can be, you know, have your momentum going towards the ball, towards the hoop, that hop just builds that rhythm and, and makes the shot much easier. Well, you know, I just made this epiphany having been a hop coach for a long time and, and thought I knew everything about it. Uh, you know, the notion of we talk about rhythm, you know, when you lift your feet off the ground as you're right before you catch it. As the feet are touching the ground, your, your knees are already beginning that straightening into that spring off of the ground, right? right. When you watch a one-two, oftentimes when they, when they plant the two, mm -hmm. there's still some more flexing down into that bend, right? And you, so you're mm -hmm. not, you, you can't quite mimic that hop, that springiness. Um, all of that said, I've been able to help some one-twos get that happening a little bit more closer to a hop. Uh, so I guess the point being is that, yes, the more closer we can get to a hop, I think the more ideal our shot ends up being. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the the shot when Stockton comes off of you uh, and Michael hits you on the top of the key, that's a hop into the game winner, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. And and uh, to me, it's just easier. Um, but <clears throat> the one, two is the one you have to do off the pin down. You know, you, you, you really can't do a, a hop off of a pin down because you're you'd be catching the yeah. ball facing the opposite direction so you have to turn your body and then one two and i and and i think that's a much more difficult shot but um, that's where you see the separation from you know the high school great shooters to college to the pros and and when you look at guys now you know jamal murray uh, and steph and and um, you know you mentioned reddick uh Guys who are, you know, Chris Middleton curling off a pin down and getting into the paint, one, two, rising up, um, shooting over the top. It's just lethal.
Yeah. I mean, we, I've seen guys being able to groove uh, in the hop and like, it's a pirouette almost right to like land mm-hmm. and get the alignment as you're hopping. Uh, some guy you can do it, but I hear you, the inside pivot foot ends up helping you get that turn better under balance. Um, but let's, let's finish this up. I thought with uh, a little bit of sort of coaching communication philosophy, because uh, that keeps coming up. And I feel like we're in this crossroads where you have a lot of coaches who are, let's just say, you know, older than you right and then there are other coaches who are you like your age and younger there seems to be a a crossroads here where uh certain coaches coach a certain way and i might use the you know the terms like anger and disgust could be a a real motivational uh tool they use or communication tool um it feels like perhaps we're moving away from that as we understand you know the chemistry of the brain mm-hmm. um so I, I was just wondering if you had some insights into that i mean people might just sort of scoff and say, well, you're in the NBA and those, those are men, they're professionals, they're making all this money. You're not going to be yelling and screaming. But I, I think it's safe to say you probably have seen your share of that kind of communication at the NBA level too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest area where coaching has changed is the nature of what is said. Um, you know, there, there's still plenty of coaches, uh, myself included, who will snap occasionally and, <laughs> you know, yell and scream. Um, I think it's more effective the, the less often you do it, but I think you have to have that in your in your bag because um, the players need to know that you're in charge and that you're paying attention. Uh, in the old days, though, coaches could um, denigrate you um, and say things that were personally offensive, and it seems so crazy now. Um, but when when I, when I look back at you know, my, my career growing up, um, other coaches or coaches, you know, coaches who coached me, like there, it wasn't that uncommon, um, to have someone really say something offensive and you were just supposed to take it. And, um, so I think we've come a long way. And I think every coach now in the NBA knows that uh, if you want to get fired, that's a great way to do it. You know, be, be personally offensive to your players. So, uh, I've been so blessed to play for pop and Phil Jackson and Lute Olson and Lenny Wilkins, all these hall of famers. And, and there's always this respect level that comes from great coaches, a communication, a respect uh, that allows um, that, that coach to, to also, you know, get a little pissed off and and lose his mind and yell. Uh, As long as you know, the coach cares about you. um, And I think, I think it's, you know, you'll let them yell at you. That's that's kind of my philosophy. Sure. And, and I, I do want to point out that there is a difference between like passion and anger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So passion is great. I mean, yeah, we, we see you, you'll, you'll throw the clipboard sometimes and stuff like that. And, right. uh, and I, I think that you're right, that there is there are moments for that as well. Um, I, you know, I don't want you to have to break any news because I was going to say, hey, give me what's an example of some of this insulting thing you're talking about. But <laughs> is, is there, you don't have, have to have an anecdote like that from a long time ago do you no okay rather not share that stuff but I, I think just in general i think there's a much better awareness that um, that the respect level has to be there and but more importantly that the best way to reach someone is to speak to them in a human way in a in a connective way um and um i, I it's i mean it's clearly uh, been proven in studies that uh, the you know human beings will respond better when they're addressed in a in a respectful manner but um, hopefully you know if you if you have a good season and a, and a team that responds well to coaching 
it all becomes more of a collaboration at the NBA level. And that's what I've really enjoyed is collaborating with our players here and trying to figure out whatever equation is in front of us. For sure. And I, and I would love for that, that statement to even emanate down to college and high school. I mean, that collaboration can still happen. Uh, I can remember when I was coaching uh, high school uh, as a head coach, you know, I've heard coaches who will every, after every practice, they will invite feedback from the players. How did I do? How did I coach today? Mm. And I, I'm shuddering to think of my, you know, my rookie, when I was a first year uh, head coach at the high school level, I wouldn't have wanted that. I don't want to hear what right. they have to say about me, but man, if, if I were to do it again, I can tell you right now, I would have those questionnaires. I would want that feedback and I would want them to be able to express themselves yeah. in, in that same way. I think it's really important. I mean, I suppose you obviously must get, do you get feedback from your NBA guys uh, from, on your coaching? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we have a pretty collaborative process. And so, um, you know, I've had, I've had players, you know, uh, our leaders, not, you know, I, you'd never get this from a young player, but, you know, our leaders have told me in the past, Hey, you know, you may have uh, crossed the line on this one or, you know, okay. You know, but it's a collaborative relationship built on years of trust and, and, you know, since we all know that we're all going to make mistakes, we're all human. I think um, it makes it easier just to to um, once you build that 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 chemistry um, that allows for this to happen, it's much, it's much easier to to just speak freely and understand that you know nobody is right all the time, nobody's wrong all the time. It's it's really a process to try to find the best possible solution and then try it and you have to have the awareness that it may not work because this is not a, a math experiment, you know, or a math equation. This is or a science experiment. This is just, it's basketball. It's more art than science. Sure. Warriors fans are now racking their brains trying to figure out who you're talking about and what that situation was, but I will leave it to their imagination. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with is I think in this idea of how we want to communicate, how we want to coach and what it means and how we get the studies, I, do, do you think that there's a thing about the modern era where three-point shooting is so important, right? And where if you're going to get outscored by three or four or five threes a game in that game, you're probably going to lose. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that uh, keeping your players in a certain frame of mind uh, in order to be able to be ready to shoot and, and be successful shooting from 25 feet or farther uh, is imperative uh, in this game. And I think that goes for every level now. Does that, does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we constantly are are pushing for our players to shoot threes. Um, maybe too much so. Last year, we 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 had games where we were just launching that uh, I thought it got a little out of hand, and and uh, so you want to find some balance. But um, there's no doubt. You just look at the numbers, um, and if if you make more threes than your opponent in the NBA these days, it's uh, I think it's like an eighty percent. Now, you probably know the number uh, better than I do, but it's really hard to win win games when you don't uh, make uh, more threes than your opponent. So it's obviously been something we've um, you know built our team on for good reason with uh, Steph and Clay and Kevin Durant here and Jordan Poole and a lot of a lot of guys who were great shooters. Um, so we'll keep doing that, and uh, but the rest of the league's doing it too, and there's a lot of great shooters out there. And so, and you had that kind of focus on, okay, we got to keep these guys calm. We got to keep these guys in the moment. We can't, we don't want to add to any agita with our own coaching, you know, stuff. Like, is that a, is that a focus for you guys in terms of maybe giving yeah. a little bit of an edge? Yeah. You don't, you don't want the guys feeling, you know, like pressure and, and thinking about every shot. 
you know, because there's, there's a lot at stake. And I know from my own playing experience, it was, it was just so much easier to play when I was loose and free. And that's the atmosphere we try to provide for our guys. Well, I, I've uh, I've seen some practices, and I certainly have uh, I recognize that that atmosphere you're describing has been is there and is created, mm-hmm. and it's been uh, it's been amazing. And in fact, what's more amazing, having been to practices a lot of other teams, is how quickly you will put in the, the things you're talking about offensively. They can run it really easily, very within a few times, and then more importantly, that night run it right well, um, yeah. and which yeah. is a testament to I think everything that you've built. So, uh, coach, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really really appreciate it. This has been really enlightening. Coach Nick, always a pleasure. Great to see you. Well, uh, I'll, I'll sign off like I always do if you can join me. Uh, and don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Coach? I'm in. <laughs> <laughs>